I want to start this morning by reading Jude. We did kind of a brief overview last week. It's such a short book, and since we're going to be camped out here for a little while, I actually want to just read the, the whole chapter. It's only 25 verses. Jude 1 through 25. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother to James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you all know these things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them! For they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the era of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. They are clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of sea, casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars from whom the dark, the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these men that Enoch and the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, fault finders, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoted, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh." 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his holy, of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. That is the entire book of Jude. So, yeah, it really is. Last week we introduced Jude with a little bit of background. We spoke of kind of the climactic buildup leading to the arrival of false brethren, apostates, and faith defectors. But we should answer the question, just what is an apostate? We've spoken about it a lot. We've used the term a lot. uh, But what is it? Well, an apostate is simply one who has abandoned the faith that they once held. They're defectors of the faith, and they've fallen away from truth. And the entire book of Jude is centered around warning against these who stay within the confines of the church. And that's what makes them so very dangerous. They often choose to stay in the church. They use the church for influence, for connections, for greed, for self-promotion. They spread false teachings, false beliefs. They even question scripture, all while appearing to be Christian. And that's what makes them deadly dangerous. The term apostasy comes from a word that means to rebel against the king or a superior. It was often used in a military context. And so that's where we talk about defectors being during a conflict. We see that today, right? People who are defecting from the faith when the world puts just a little bit of pressure on them. Um, So-called Christians who have abandoned the fight trying to appease the world rather than standing for what's true and what's right. These are apostates, defectors. In the Old Testament, uh, apostate, the word was used to denote rebellion specifically against God's directives. These are the people who say things like, did God really say that? We hear a lot that, right? Homosexuality is an abomination, but did God really say that? Um, They abandon and attack the truth by bringing in strange teachings, so-called prophets, um, others who come in and try to kind of woo people to themselves and away from the word of God. And so Jude tells us to look out for these pseudo-Christians. Jude can be a bit of an overwhelming book. In fact, he goes on so much about it. Now, if you'll remember, in Matthew 7... 15, Jesus also said, beware of the false prophets. Beware of the false prophets who come to you with a big red flag saying I'm a false prophet. No, right? Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And so they look like Christians. They talk like Christians. They know how to act like Christians. But in reality, they're inwardly ravenous wolves. Uh, he warns again in Matthew sixteen six, watch out and beware, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jesus said. Paul warns that they're coming. John warns that they're coming. Peter warns, and then Jude says, they are here. And so this brings us to our text this morning, Jude 1 and 2. So we'll start there, Jude, we'll stop there. <laughs> Jude really is an extraordinary book in its short 25 verses. And in reality, as you well said, it couldn't be more critical today. 
Likewise, what we're going to see today, we're going to cover Jude 1 and 2, Lord willing. These first two sentences are filled with rich doctrine, significant theology, and profound truth. Uh, We mentioned that the author of the book was Jude, or Judas in Greek, or Judah in Hebrew. So this wasn't Jude the Apostle Jude. Um, It obviously wasn't Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Christ, but rather Jude, who was the brother of James, which would make him the half-brother of Jesus. And it's interesting, likely his choice in describing himself as James's brother rather than Jesus's brother is consequence of his deep devotion to Christ as Savior. I believe it also demonstrates a great humility that Jude had. It seems like I mean, if you think about it, invoking Jesus as his brother might give him a little more clout than James, right? I'm Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, but he doesn't say that. So I would assume that it would have lent a little more validity to his epistle. He's sending this letter around to all the churches, um, but he doesn't do that. He rather says that he is the brother of James. He also uses a very familiar introduction. He says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. There's a lot in that. We see this in other epistles, um, right? For instance, the Apostle Paul often refers to himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, that's an interesting choice of words, bondservant. And I think, our, I, in fact, our English translation actually avoids the exact word. The term in Greek is doulos, and it literally means slave. So... Jude actually reads, if you do a direct translation, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. When Paul uses bondservant, he's actually saying Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Right? That's a significant introduction. Well, what is a slave? Right? We know what this is. A slave is a person that is owned as property by someone else. Now, slavery wasn't a new concept to Jude. Um, It's foreign to us in our context because we don't have slaves as such. Um, But Jude knew very well what he meant when he said he was a slave of Christ. They lived in a world where slavery was extremely prominent. It was widespread through all the ancient Near East. And in fact, by Roman times, slavery is believed to be so extensive um, during the early church period that one out of every two people was likely a slave. That's pretty significant. Slave was an intentional title that Jude used, and it has a significant meaning. For Jude, it indicated that the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ had totally transformed him. This very Jude that previously had no confidence in Christ. Well, what do I mean? Well, listen to John 7, 1 through 5. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, so Jude would be included in this, leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he seeks himself to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world." And so they're mocking him. They say, if you do all these things you say, then why don't you go and demonstrate it? For not even his brothers were believing in him. And so Jude went from mocking Jesus to saying, I am a slave of Christ. Well, in fact, I would just ask you this morning, do you consider yourself to be a slave of Christ? 
In reality, we are all slaves to something. You're either slaves to facts or falsehood. We're either slaves to that which is upright or that which is unjust. We're either slaves to virtue or vice. We we are either slaves to the father of lies or to the father of lights. And so Jude, who was once a mocker of Jesus, his own brother, now says, I am a slave of Christ. This should be the title of every Christian. And we shouldn't be ashamed to use it, slave of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So Jude watched Christ, his brother, half-brother. He watched him being beaten, likely. He watched him brutalized. He likely watched him carry the cross to Calvary. I have no reason to believe that he didn't see Christ draw his last breath, the blood dripping from his hands, his feet. And at some stage, the reality of all that which Christ taught laid hold of Jude, and it transformed him. It made him alive so much that he starts this letter with, I'm a slave of Christ. It gave him life. And it gives us life. 1 Corinthians 15, 23 says, In Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming to those who belong to Christ. Jude belonged to Christ. And so it is with every true believer. Jude understood who he was and whose he was. He was a slave of Christ, and he wasn't ashamed of that. Jude went from denying Christ as Messiah, as his brother, to being a slave of Christ as his Lord. He was no longer living for himself, but for Christ. No longer mocking his half-brother, but serving Christ his Lord. No longer captive to sin, but captive to Christ. What an incredible transformation. So much so that he ends up writing a book in canonized scripture, one who mocked Christ. Kind of sounds a bit like the Apostle Paul in some ways, doesn't it? Except you would think that being the brother of Jesus, seeing all the things he might have seen, he would believe, but... And eventually he did. And so he opens a letter by stating his position in Christ. That's a significant introduction. But it gets better. You look at the third phrase in the first verse, we're told to whom this letter is intended. Who is he writing this letter to? He's writing the letter to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. This is a Trinitarian statement here. We are called, and we're called by the Holy Spirit of God. We're beloved by God the Father, and we're kept by Jesus Christ. If ever there was a statement on eternal security, it's right here. But just think about it. What could conceivably separate those who are called by God the Holy Spirit from God? What could turn the affections away from those who are beloved by God? I mean, what could snatch us away if Jesus is the one who keeps us? Well, the answer is nothing. And 
Paul also believed that in Romans 8.38, he says this very thing, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that pretty amazing? Nothing can separate you from the love of God if you belong to Him. Nothing. Turn with me, if you got your Bibles, to John 10 real quick. John 10, 27 and 29. I'll give you a second to get there. So this is Jesus speaking. And this is what he says. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I mean, this is Jesus saying that if you are the called, if you are the beloved, that you are kept, and no one can snatch you out of my hand. Nothing can keep you from the love of God. This is eternal security. This is perseverance of the saints. And so Jude is defining his audience. He's characterizing the Christians to whom he's writing to. And he uses these three phrases, the called, the beloved, and the kept. So who are the called? What does it mean to be called? I mean, this is the doctrine of election. You didn't just become a Christian on your own volition. God called you. Without the call of God, you can't see God. You can't come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ without the call of God. It doesn't say those who chose God. It doesn't say those who picked themselves up by their bootstraps and made a good decision. It says those who are called. In other words, the call, that is an act of God, not an act of man. Now, there is undoubtedly a general call. And for most of you, if you'll remember back to Psalm 19, the study we did, right? It talks about how the creation speaks of the glory of God. That's a general call, but then there's also a specific call, what theologians call an effectual call. And that is what Jude is speaking of, an effectual call. But there certainly are general calls. In John 7, 37, Jesus stood up at the feast in front of everyone. And he said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So this was a general call. This is the call that men can indeed ignore. They can reject this call. People can look at creation and say, I know there must be something, but... I'm just going to do my own thing. They can reject that general call. But there's another call, and that is the one our text is referring to, the effectual call, being a called one. It's a specific call. It's one that you cannot resist. It's the call of the Holy Spirit that results in your justification. It's the call that wakes you up to your need for Christ. It's the call that's often communicated when people say things like, 
I just had to respond. They may not have theological terminology to put behind it, but maybe you've experienced that self yourself when you came to Christ. There was just something that compelled you. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. That is the call that is not denied. That's the call when Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice. In 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24, Paul says, But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, the people who are chosen by God who respond to this call after hearing the gospel, we refer to as the elect. So the called are the elect. And so Judas, speaking to those who belong to God, who have been called, who are the elect, true Christians, those trusting in the risen Christ. Well, listen to Romans 8.29. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So God knew you before the foundations of the earth and He predestined that you would come to Christ and be conformed to the image of Christ. These are the called, the elect. Remember what God told Jeremiah? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. God called Jeremiah before he was even born. And the reality is, if you're sitting here and you're a Christian this morning then God also called you even before you were born. Well, let's just go to the next verse in that same Romans passage. So we read Romans 8.29. For those who He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of of His Son so that He would be the firstborn of many brethren. Let's just continue on in verse 30. It says, And these whom He predestined, here it is, He also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Ephesians 1.5, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according, not to your own good works, but to the kind intention of his will. This is an effectual call that cannot be resisted, that God determined before the foundations of the earth were ever created. This is why believing in this doctrine of election, believing and understanding in what it means to be the called, ought to cause us to be the most humble people on earth because we understand that it was nothing that we did or deserved. God in His mercy, for whatever reason that it pleased Him, He chose us before we were ever born. Not because I was a good person, not because I did good works, simply because He chose to love me and He chose to love you and none of us deserved that. So Jude is speaking to those who have been known by God since the beginning of time. Those who were predestined to believe. And so subsequently he called. These are the sons and daughters of God. I mean, this is an essential introduction. 
especially in a book that's talking about pseudo-Christians and false converts. It's especially interesting that Jude, in verse 24, so towards the end of the book, he also says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And so Jude, in, in between where there is basically watch out, beware, make sure that even your clothes aren't stained. He wants to give the believers a sense of eternal security so that they can fight the battle well and not worry about being carried off. So Jude couches what really could be quite terrifying in terms of being afraid that you may be carried away in being around or dealing with false teachers He couches it in two statements at the beginning and the end of eternal security. He wants believers to know that God will keep them even in the midst of such a battle. Revelation 17, 14, we read, Those who are with Him, Him being Christ, are the called and chosen and faithful And so if you're called, you're called because you're chosen. If you're chosen, you will be faithful until the end. You will persevere. You won't be perfect, but you will persevere. God promises that. I like how John MacArthur lays out for what we're called to. He says we're called to fellowship with the Son. He says we're called to inherit a blessing. We're called to freedom. We're called to peace. We're called to holiness. We're called to a worthy walk. We're called to one hope in Christ. And we're called to eternal glory. It's just a short list, but these and far more are involved in what it means to be the called of God. And this is who Jude is directing his letter to in these first statements. As he moves forward to begin warning about the dangers of heresy and false teachers in the church. So that's the called, but Jude doesn't just direct his letter to the called, right? He used three phrases there. He also distinguishes his audience by the phrase, the beloved of the God the Father. Now, beloved, we don't use that word in day-to-day life too much, but it's a term of intense affection. It's probably better read, beloved by God, but it's an endearing phrase. Listen to Romans 1.7. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, Paul introduces Philippians uh, 2.12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed. So it's a term of endearment. But here, in Jude, the agent of that is God, not man. This is God's love directed towards His children And in this, again, we see another securing element for believers. Now, I'm going to geek out here with language for just a moment because I think it's important and incredible. Um, If you're a language nerd, just in general, like my wife is, um, you should know that the word beloved here is a perfect participle in the Greek language. Well, what on earth does that mean? A perfect participle is an action that occurred in the past that continues forever in the future. So, 
This is the strongest Greek verb tense that could be used here in the word beloved. And so it indicates something that is immutable, unchangeable, and forever perpetual. So once you are the beloved of God, you can never cease to be the beloved of God. So the language there is incredible. So Jude is speaking to those who have held the affections of God from eternity past. Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So even while we were enemies of God, because He called us from before the foundations, He loved us. And we see the fruit of that in our coming into salvation, right? This one little phrase bears the weight of the love of the sovereign God of the universe towards His children. It's a lot to get your mind around. This love is so great that we were adopted into the family of God. We read that in passages earlier, Ephesians 1.5. He predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters according to the kind intentions of His will. Jesus in John 14.23 says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. So God loves the called, the beloved, and the Christian as much as he loves his own son. You ever thought about that? God loves his children as much as he loves his son Jesus. John states it this way in 1 John 3. 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. And so though Jude gives a dire warning about those who creep in, who seek to pervert Christian beliefs, who teach doctrines of demons, he wants to make sure that as believers, we know that we can engage in that battle without fear of being swept away. We must be cautious, he says, not to even get our clothes stained by their filth. But we can be sure that because we are the beloved, because we are children of God, that he will guard us as we engage in the battle for truth. In Elijah's day, he thought he was the last one. Have you ever felt like, man, I just don't know if there are many other believers here in Homer. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe you're like, God, is there, are there any other sane people here? Well, Elijah felt that way, right? He thought he was the last one who feared God in the whole land, right? Jezebel was trying to kill him. And what does God say in 1 Kings 19.18? He says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. I mean, Elijah just thought he was the only one left. God says, No, I've got 7,000. But listen to the language. I will leave 7,000 in Israel. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Well, how could God promise such a thing unless he had the power to keep them? Right? Keep them safe from harm. Keep them safe from falling prey to false doctrines. Keep them faithful. He says it because that 7,000 were called. They were beloved by him. 
And so he kept them. And this leads us into the next phrase of our text this morning. Jude writes to the called, he writes to the beloved, and then he says the kept. Not Not only are Christians called by God, that being the effectual call of salvation, but Christians and Christians are beloved by God, chosen before the foundation of the earth. But lastly, Christians are kept. We're called, we're not just called, but we're loved. And we're not just loved, but we're kept. Some of your Bibles might say kept for Jesus, but it seems like the grammar of the text is more likely by Jesus, and people who are far smarter than me have decided that. The word there is tereo. It means to guard, so kept. Uh, It means to guard, to guard from loss, to guard against injury. It means to guard, I, as in, I'm keeping an eye on you. Right? That's what it means there. It's an intense, purposeful guarding. It communicates an intense care as in something you cherish deeply. What a thought. God cherishes you deeply. Just let that sink in for a moment. Jesus treasures you. And we're not talking about some happy-go-lucky, God-loves-everyone-the-way-they-are, sloppy Joel Osteen message. This is Jesus who said in John 15, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus died on the cross for your redemption. What a love. And here we see that the called and the beloved He also keeps. He watches out for us. He guards us. I think in today's age, what better news can you have than that? I mean, just look around. People are apostatizing from the faith all the time. I mean, every couple weeks, if you turn on the news, if you follow any of that, you see some big-time preacher that's fallen into some sexual sin or some other kind of sin. But God keeps those who truly belong to Him. So when you hear of things like the perseverance of the saints, we ought to think of passages like the one in Jude and some of the others we've read. Remember John 10, Jesus says, No one is able to snatch the believer from his hand or the Father's hand. You can't get any clearer than that. Jesus keeps us. The true believer cannot lose his salvation. And to doubt that is to question the very words of Christ himself. This should be an incredible comfort to us. We're told in 1 Peter 1.5 that the power of God protects us through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So if God promises to keep us, then there's no chance of being lost. Not only that, the reality is if you could be lost, then you have a works-based salvation. If you have to be good enough or do the right thing or keep from doing a wrong thing to keep your salvation, then you're doomed. Because none of us can keep the law perfectly. And if you break even one small part of the law, you've broken all the law, Scripture tells us. No. Jesus himself says no one will snatch his from his hand. It's pretty clear. 
That's why we need Christ. Without Christ, eternal hell is the destination. But for those who have received faith, for those who are called, for those who are beloved, God promises to keep. I bet it's a big comfort to James Coates right now who's sitting in prison. I'm sure it was a big comfort to Paul when he was whipped multiple times and stoned several times and in jail. In fact, Paul's the one that said nothing can keep us from the love of God, right? So as we engage in the battle that Jude is bringing us into, and we know that battle's already here, right? It's paramount that we know our place in God, that He will keep us, that He has His loving grip on us, and that we can rest in His promises, knowing that He says He keeps His watchful eye on us. Again, if salvation could be lost, it would be lost. But no, God keeps us. Not because we deserve it, but because He was pleased to call us and adopt us as sons and daughters. But this isn't a license to sin, right? We understand that. But it is the reality of every, every believer. Every true believer will long to desire and pursue a holy life. But you aren't kept by your good works. You're kept by Almighty God. And nothing can compete with that power of God. That's why Paul could make the statement in Romans 38, right? For I'm convinced that neither death nor life. And he doesn't just say, nothing can separate you from the life of God. He draws it out, right? Just stacking on one thing after another. Neither death nor life nor angels, and the list goes on and on and on, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If the devil could snatch you from the hands of God, he would have done it already. And you would be powerless to stop him on your own. Well, case in point, let's look at Job. Job in uh, chapter 1, Satan is in the heavenlies talking to God, and he says this, because God has said, Hey, Job, look at my, I mean, hey, Satan, look at my servant Job. There's none like him in all the land. And Satan says, Have you, you God, not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Satan couldn't touch Job. You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Satan couldn't do any more to Job than what was allowed. God kept Job and he promises to keep you. Now, after Jude distinguishes his audience, those who are called, beloved, and kept giving assurance for the believer, he goes on to pray quite an amazing triad of qualities over them. He says, May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Jude desires that these believers, that is you and I, be filled to capacity with everything that God has for us, with those qualities that salvation alone affords. Now, mercy and peace, you read that in a lot of other epistles. It was a common Jewish greeting. And then Jude adds love to the mix. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Well, why was that a prevalent prayer back then? Well, because first and foremost, believers are the recipients of God's mercy, right? In salvation. But beyond that, God is generous with mercy towards His children. 
Ephesians 2, 3 through 5 says, Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. His great mercy is lavished on those who He's called, beloved, and kept. The greeting of mercy is found in other places. You can find it in 2 John, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. And in fact, there are four places in Scripture that's very similar to Jude. And it's interesting, every single one of those places have the background of being a warning against false teachers and preachers. The fight is real, and it's tough, and God lavishes His mercies on us for that. It's a stark reminder for us that grace is not only needed at the point of salvation, but we need it every day in our life. Prophet Jeremiah in Lamentations 3 affirms that not only is mercy needed each day, but it is also given each day. You'll know this passage, the Lord's loving kindness or mercy indeed never ceases, for His compassion never fails. They are new every morning. You've heard His mercies are new every morning. This is that place. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Mercy and peace. So God not only gives His mercies continually, but He also grants us peace. It can be depressing to be in a battle all the time, right? We've probably all felt that over the last year or two. There's an intensity in constantly having to struggle for truth. That's never been like it has been, I think, in our country for the last couple years, especially 2020. And so we're constantly bombarded with the falsities of the world. And then Jude tells us that we also not just have to battle the world, but now you need to gear up and you need to battle in the church. And so we've got to battle everywhere. And then he says, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. And it isn't just any kind of peace. It's the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension that guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We need this peace for the battle. Jesus reassured the apostles with words of peace in John 14, 27. Jesus himself says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. That's a passage for today. And so Jude says, I'm writing this letter, I'm writing this letter to the called, to the beloved, and to the kept. And not only am I writing this letter, but I'm praying a blessing that God's mercy would be on you daily, and that you would have peace. And this peace is the peace that is so comprehensive. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. That should be the byproduct of God's peace is that we can 
live without a fearfulness. His peace is that which allows us to see the destruction all around us. His peace is what allows us to be able to cope with the downgrade of much of the church, the wayward choices of family and friends. And rather than being distraught, we can look to Christ and we can be comforted comforted because we have true peace. Jesus said again to his disciples in John 16, 33, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And so Jude writes this little letter saying, beware, watch out, be careful. Deadly heresies have come into the church. And he begins the letter letting you know that as Jesus himself said, there's going to be tribulation, but you can take courage because the peace of God has been granted to all of those who are called, who are beloved, and who are kept. Take courage, Jesus said. You have peace. Christ has overcome the world. Mercy, peace, and love. He prays God's love, the last of this triad of blessings by Jude in this greeting of the epistle, love for God, love for one another, love for your neighbor. And we should be reminded that we have love and we're able to love because he first loved us, right? First John, we're able to love God and love others only because God has given us his love in Christ. Romans 5, 5, the love of God has been poured out within your hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us, who was given to us. I mean, what other blessings could you ask for than these? What blessings aren't included in God's mercy and God's peace and God's love? I mean, as children of God... If you want to talk about what privilege you have, you've got God privilege. We have an infinite privilege in spiritual blessing. And these privileges, however, come with a responsibility. And Jude is segueing from that into what those responsibilities are. They're for a purpose, right? We're to make disciples of all the world. We're to proclaim the gospel to the lost. We're supposed to be a light on a hill, as it were. The world isn't our enemy. It's our mission field. We stand up for truth. We battle on every front we can. But the world is our mission field. And isn't it so clear who the mission field is these days? It's getting clearer and clearer. We are to engage in a great battle for truth. And Jude is saying you need to battle in the church. Keep the church pure. pure. Beware. It's your duty. And that's a sobering matter to which Jude turns after the greeting, which we will begin with in our next time together. But remember, as the battle for truth rages, as it gets worse, and we're promised it's going to get worse, Remember this, that Jude lets us know very clearly that God grants His mercy, that He grants His peace, and that He grants His love to those who are called, to those who are beloved, and subsequently kept 
by God.